invite you to turn with me to the 119th Psalm, Psalm 119. You are probably aware that this is the longest psalm in the Bible, and we are going to read just one section of it. The second to last section, which begins in verse 161, You'll notice this is under the Hebrew letter Shin. And what that means uh, is that each verse under this section begins with that Hebrew letter. I think I probably point this out whenever I'm in the 119th Psalm. This is something of a literary masterpiece. And it's also worth noting, too, that this entire psalm is a prayer that when you begin this psalm, way back in verse 1, by the time you get to, what is it? Is it verse uh, verse 4? Every single verse from verse 4 until you reach the end in 176, every one of those verses is addressed to God, with one exception, and that is verse 115, where the psalmist uh, says, Depart from me, ye evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. So he addresses the evildoers, I suppose, in a rhetorical sense. But outside of that, every verse from verse 4 to the very end is addressed to God, which means this is something of a literary masterpiece and a prayer. And whenever the topic for discussion comes up, about written prayers. Are they proper? Should we create them? Should we utilize them? I'm always uh, mindful of the 119th Psalm. Here is a written prayer and uh, a literary masterpiece and one that we do well to utilize in our devotional lives. So let's read now from verse 161, the section under the Hebrew letter Shin. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Lord, I have hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. My soul hath kept thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies, for all my ways are before thee. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the section. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention to the very first verse of this section, verse 161, where the psalmist says, Princes have persecuted me without a cause but my heart standeth in awe of thy words. Princes have persecuted me 
without a cause. We don't know for sure who wrote this psalm. Some suggest, I think Spurgeon being among them, and I think probably with good reason, that David would be the author of this psalm. That seems to be the default mode with Spurgeon. Uh, When in doubt, assign it to David. And it is quite possible that he is the author of this psalm, though, like I say, there is nothing specifically that identifies him as being the author, as there are in other psalms. But, like I say, some commentators believe he wrote the psalm, and if that is indeed the case, then we would have no trouble finding a historical setting for the verse I just now read to you, princes have persecuted me without a cause. The word princes carries the meaning here of rulers or governors. And the verse therefore brings to mind that David had to flee from Saul. It seems that no matter how often Saul attempted to hunt down David, it didn't matter how often those efforts were thwarted by the Lord, it seems like Saul would not give up his intense pursuit of David. And the word pursue, you know, has a a connection to the word persecute. I'm thinking probably now more in terms of Greek than Hebrew, but when I think of the... uh, Greek term for persecute, you find the term pursue very much in it. So if David is the author, we can readily relate to the setting that's given to us in verse 161. Saul viewed David as a rival to his throne, who must therefore be pursued and apprehended and executed. David must be snuffed out so that Saul's dynasty could continue. And Saul pursued that vision um, over and over and over again. Now, the history of the church is to a large degree a history of persecution. Whether it be the persecution of the Christians at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 8, where we have the account of the Christians being scattered out of their familiar surroundings, or whether it be the persecution of Christians by the Roman Empire, or the persecution of Christians throughout the time when the apostate Church of Rome had full sway, or whether it be in the times of the Scottish Covenanters. Not that long ago, we passed the 250th anniversary of the Act of Uniformity, an act which forced some 2,000 ministers from Scotland out of their pulpits and eventually led to a period in Scottish history that would be called the Killing Times. Rather interesting, you can actually buy a book, Banner of Truth has republished it in recent days, which contains a book of sermons that were the farewell sermons of preachers that were having to abandon their pulpits rather than subscribe to the king's uh, dictates. Fox's Book of Martyrs documents very thoroughly the truth that uh, the history of the church is a history of persecution. And this persecution has taken place, and indeed is taking place, 
even up to this present hour. In a typical issue of the magazine, The Voice of the Martyrs, the headline reads, Iranian persecution increases. Persecution continues without let-up in Iran, according to several news sources. Several believers in Shiraz were arrested while worshiping in a private home. Family members have no idea where those arrested are being held. Also, the Iranian government ordered the last two officially registered Christian churches to discontinue their services on Friday, when most Iranians are off work and would be able to attend. There are certainly many today that could affirm the words of our text, Princes have persecuted me without a cause. And this isn't the first mention of persecution in this 119th Psalm. Verse 84, How many are the days of thy servant? When wilt thou execute judgment on them that persecute me? Verse 86, All thy commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help thou me. Verse 157, Many are my persecutors and mine enemies. Yet do I not decline from thy testimonies. So the thing I want you to see from the text today, however, is that persecution was not the thing that dominated the psalmist's heart. What a contrast we find between the two parts of our text today. The first part reads, Princes have persecuted me without a cause. You might expect the next part of the verse to read something like, Woe is me, therefore, my persecutors are many. Or woe is me, following after the Lord is so hard. But notice that the second part of the verse says nothing like that. It sets up a remarkable contrast when it says, rather, Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. My heart standeth in awe of thy word. Isn't that an incredible statement? Especially when you think of it in connection with what precedes it. And doesn't such a statement show you in increasing measure the value of God's word? And that's really what the 119th Psalm is all about. If ever you want to study the topic of what the Bible says about the Bible, you go to the 119th Psalm. It's all about God's Word. I remember from my days some while back now, preaching at the Wheeler Mission, that most of the people that stayed there had little or nothing. I can remember one man asked me to pray for him after the service and shared with me that when his time was up at the Wheeler Mission, he had no place to go. Notwithstanding their poverty... I would make it a point of emphasis that if they came to the Wheeler Mission without a Bible and could leave Wheeler Mission with a Bible, they would be leaving the Wheeler Mission rich because they would have in their possession the words of eternal life. 
One of the reasons that we're rich when we possess God's word is because God's word has much to say about our trials and afflictions. It has much to say on the subject of persecution. So that's the issue I want to address from this section of the psalm this afternoon, this issue of persecution. And what I want you to consider with me in particular is the antidote for persecution. The Christian's antidote for persecution. An antidote is defined as a substance that counteracts the effects of a toxin or something that will take away or reduce the bad effects of something unpleasant or undesirable. And the psalmist certainly demonstrates for us the effectiveness of such an antidote. Let's look at that antidote then for a moment or two under just a couple of headings. Consider with me, first of all, that God's Word serves as that antidote by teaching us what to expect. The Bible teaches us what to expect in the present state of things. Note again the words of verse 161. Princes have persecuted me without a cause, and underscore those words, without a cause. Usually when something's done without a cause, it's also done unexpectedly. We like to think that we live in a world that's rational or reasonable, so when things are done, they're usually done for a reason, but in the case of persecution, there is no reason. At least there's no reason that a Christian can detect. From a different perspective, however, from the perspective of sinful men, there is a reason. It's not a reason that the world will readily admit to, but it is a reason that we learn from Christ himself. The reason that Christians are persecuted is because Christ is hated by sinners. Listen to the words of Christ from John 15 and verse 18. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. A few verses later in verse 25, we find Christ using the very phrase of our text, without a cause. Actually, it's John that uses the phrase when he writes, But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Those are the words of Christ, actually, recorded by John. They hated me without a cause. Now that phrase, without a cause, is a single word in the Greek which in other places is translated by another English word, the word freely. We find that same term used by Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Or being justified, you could read it, without a cause. In this verse in Romans, the term makes reference to our merit, 
There is no basis in our merit for our justification. With reference to our merit, our justification is without a cause. So in the case of Christ, in John chapter 15 and verse 25, you could say that there was no basis in Christ's merit that could have earned or deserved the hatred of sinners. In spite of the fact that he taught them the truth, went about the country doing good, still they hated him nevertheless. And because there is this indwelling animosity toward Christ that springs from the sinful nature of man, there will also be animosity toward those that identify with Christ. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I think it comes as a shock to new Christians that the world doesn't rejoice with them when they get saved. Certainly came as a shock to me when I shared with people what the Lord had done for me. I was 21 years old, so I'm a young adult. I'm able to share with my parents, with my siblings, with anyone who would listen. I thought they would have been impressed and surprised and would desire to gain what I had gained. I can certainly recall how surprised I was to learn how underwhelming my salvation was to the minds and hearts of others. And this is initially a hard thing for the young Christian to grasp. After all, he's found freedom from sin's guilt and sin's power. A heavy burden has dropped from the Christian's shoulder, so to speak. He's found a peace that he's never known before. He has cause for joy and rejoicing because of the prospects of heaven and everlasting life. You would think that those that are near and dear to him who are yet outside of Christ would be thrilled and would be interested and would want the same blessings that the Christian has gained. But alas, they not only are not interested... But they don't really even want to hear about it. And so the new Christian's reaction to the reactions toward him is one of utter astonishment. What's wrong with these people, he says to himself, that they don't want for themselves the wonderful blessings that I have gained for myself in Christ? Don't they understand that it's free? Don't they get it that salvation is a free gift that only needs to be received by faith? I say that that quite often is the new Christian's initial reaction. Eventually, he comes to learn that the world hates him without a cause because the world hated Christ without a cause. (coughs) The world hates Christ because sinners by nature are rebels against Christ who prefer sin over Christ. And once the new believer learns from God's word the extent of man's sinfulness, then that Christian will no longer be amazed so much at the world's hostility as he becomes more amazed by his own salvation. That new believer will come to learn, you see, that he too hated Christ without a cause. 
that he too was a rebel against God who loved his sin and would have clung to his sin were it not for a more powerful and gracious force that compelled him to let go of sin and embrace Christ as he's freely offered in the gospel. The first step then in an antidote to persecution is to learn to expect it and don't be surprised by it. Peter writes in his first epistle, chapter 4 and verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. There is an aspect to such fiery trials, you see, that contributes to your conformity to Christ. A part of your sanctification is being made conformable unto his death. And what that means in plain and practical terms is that you will bear something of the brunt of the world's hatred for him because of the way you identify with him and own him to be your savior. When you view persecution that way, you'll come to see it the way the apostles saw it. They actually looked upon it as a privilege. When they were brought before the council in Acts chapter 5, and were reminded that they had been charged not to teach in the name of Jesus, and they were beaten, and then they were released, we read in Acts 5 and verse 41, And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. You may remember also the words of Christ from the Sermon on the Mount. In that portion known as the Beatitudes, he pronounces a double blessing, you might say, on those that are persecuted. So we read in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 10, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Rather interesting to note from that statement by Christ, isn't it? That this is not new. What is happening to you, Christ says, is not new. You're receiving the same treatment that the prophets before you received in their day. We know, of course, that it's not easy or natural to rejoice and be exceeding glad when it comes to the matter of persecution. Persecution at times is severe, so while the first part of the antidote to persecution alerts us to the reality of it in such a way that we'll not think it to be strange, the truth is we need much more than this to withstand it and to rise above it. And this leads to my next and final consideration regarding this antidote. For not only does God's word serve as an antidote by teaching us what to expect, but it serves as an antidote 
by adjusting our perspective. By adjusting our perspective. Oftentimes we need a perspective adjustment, don't we? You could say that one of the functions that church serves is to provide that adjustment. I'm reminded of a couple of the Psalms, Psalm 73. I think the other one is Psalm 77, where the psalmist initially is feeling sorry for himself. Why do the wicked have it so easy? And I have it no hard. I have it so hard. And this seems to dominate his soul until he goes to the house of God. And there he receives a perspective adjustment. And by adjusting our perspective, what I mean to say is that God's word enables you to view the bigger picture. Look again at the words of verse 161 and note again the contrast that I pointed out earlier. Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. Of the two parts that make up this verse, it's not hard to perceive which thing dominated the psalmist's heart. Is he taken up with the difficult challenges of persecution, or is he taken up with something else? It's very important, uh, very apparent that he's taken up with something else. And this is not to say that he doesn't feel the pain of persecution. Earlier in the psalm, verse 84, we find his petition or his complaint when he says to God, How many are the days of thy servant? When wilt thou execute judgment on them that persecute me? And in verse 86, All thy commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help thou me. So we have to guard ourselves against any kinds of misconceptions about persecution as if to suggest that it's possible to become so heavenly-minded that we can somehow be oblivious to the pains and the challenges of persecution. Such a notion becomes a phony ideal. But on the other hand, neither should the Christian be so dominated either by the reality or the potential for persecution that persecution becomes the only thing that he can think about. Some Christians, I'm afraid, are like that. They, they almost draw some kind of perverse pleasure out of being consumed with gloom and doom. This section of Psalm 119 makes it evident that it wasn't persecution that dominated the psalmist's heart so much as it was the awesomeness of God's word. My heart standeth in awe of thy word. And isn't there much in God's word to cause our hearts to stand in awe? Do you not find yourself standing in awe that you're on the side of persecution that you're on? In other words, you are among the persecuted rather than among the ones that are persecuting. You hated God and you hated Christ as much as anyone. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were in love with sin and you hated anyone or anything that dared to call you out on sin. 
You had your part, spiritually speaking, in joining the crowd that called out for Christ to be crucified. But look at you now. You're a trophy of grace. Something awesome has happened to you. Your eyes have been opened. Your ears have been unstopped. You gained the inward illumination of heart to see that you were on the broad road headed for destruction. And then your attention was drawn again to Christ. But this time you saw him not as the one who called you out, but you see him rather as the one who was crucified in your place. The one who died that you might live. <coughs> You've come to see the plan of salvation and the purpose of Christ coming and being put to death. And you stand in awe of one willing and able to die in your place. And by seeing such a matchless display of love, and contrasting it to what you know to be your unworthiness of such love, your heart stands in awe, or it certainly should. Your heart stands in awe of Christ in his glory. You see him now ruling over this world and advancing his kingdom. And while you have the spiritual discernment to see that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, your heart is awed by the truth that he that sitteth in the heavens laughs at their schemes. And you're awed by the glorious truth that God has set his king upon his holy hill of Zion. These are but a few of the things that are conveyed to your heart by the Spirit of God through the Word of God that move your heart to stand in awe. It's no wonder then that the psalmist goes on to say in this section of Psalm 119, I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. You have found great spoil or great treasure in God's word if you have read and have appropriated that word to the saving of your soul. Look also at what the psalmist says in verse 164. Seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments. Verse 165. Great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. Verse 166, I have hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. And when you look at these verses and compare and contrast them to the statement in our text that princes have persecuted me without a cause, then it's not hard to discern what is truly dominating the psalmist's heart. And this is what makes the word of God a real and true antidote to persecution. When salvation rules your heart to the point that you're engaged in the practice of praise seven times a day, then you may not have escaped persecution, but you've definitely risen above it. And when the truth of your acceptance and standing with God through Christ fills and thrills your heart, you'll be able to say, even amidst great persecution, that great peace have they that, that love thy law, and nothing 
not even persecution, shall offend them. The antidote then to persecution <coughs> is found in being taken up with the greatness of God and the greatness of Christ and the greatness of salvation purchased by Christ. The apostles illustrate this for us in Acts chapter 4, where they're arrested for the first time, and they're charged not to teach or preach Christ. We read in that chapter, beginning with verse 23, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord, and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. Doesn't that prayer perfectly illustrate the point I'm making? That the word of God adjusts our perspective and enables us to see the bigger picture. Do you see how the apostles are so taken up with the greatness of God and the greatness of Christ? When it comes to the matter of their arrest and their persecution, their petition really is very simple. And now, Lord... Behold their threatenings. That's all they say with regard to their persecution. Take note of it, Lord. It's almost a footnote to their prayer. <coughs> we learn, therefore, what to look for and what to expect when we open our Bibles. You should expect to see Christ in his glory. You should seek to behold him in his glory. You should expect to learn of the greatness of your salvation. And when you behold these things in God's word, then your heart will stand in awe and you'll find yourself compelled to praise and you won't experience any disruption to your peace or your joy by any set of external circumstances. So learn to read the book and learn to read it with reverence and awe. Ask the Holy Spirit to convey to your soul the greatness of the truths of God's Word. And if you'll do that and the Lord answers prayer, you will indeed have the antidote to persecution. Not to suggest that you'll be spared from it, but like I said a moment ago, you'll be enabled to rise above it. Let's close then in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bow now in thy presence and bring this meeting to a close, we cannot deny, O oh Lord, that we've seen it come to pass in our day.
such things as we never would have expected, that Christians are being persecuted. It makes its way into this very nation. It seems, O oh Lord, that in days gone by, we always thought of it as something remotely out there. But now it draws incredibly near. Help us not to be intimidated by it. Help us instead to follow the example of the psalmist who stood in awe of thy word and the things revealed in thy word. Oh, may our hearts indeed see very clearly the bigger picture of Christ on his throne, extending his kingdom and conquering in the end. And may we, like our Savior, be more than conquerors through him that loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.